We continue in the Gospel of John, so I invite you to open your Bibles with me here to John chapter 5, verses 25 through 30. That'll be our focus today. Just as a way of summary, very quickly, Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem for a feast. We don't know which feast. And as he has traveled back to Jerusalem, he came across the pool of Bethesda and there encountered a man who had been crippled for sick, rather, for 38 years and was so sick that he was not capable of tending to himself or caring for himself. And at the pool of Bethesda, there was this superstitious belief that when this natural pool, this natural spring, was stirred by the inflow of water, that it was the stirring of an angel, and if you were the first person into the water after it was stirred, then you could be healed from whatever your ailment was. That was the common belief in Jerusalem, and especially around the Pool of Bethesda. Hundreds and hundreds of people gathered there, and Jesus seeks out this one individual and heals him, and he happens to do so on the Sabbath day. And as the man is going about his day, he comes across the Pharisees who see him carrying his straw mat or his bed, and they begin to interrogate him about the audacity to violate the Sabbath, and he ends up telling them that it was Jesus the one that healed me and gave me the authority and the instruction to carry my pallet. And so for that reason, the Jews were hostile towards Jesus. And at the end of our passage last week, we learned that they sought to persecute him because of the things that Jesus had done, healing on the Sabbath, and even more so, as we looked at last week, with the claims that he made about himself. And so very quickly, the five claims that Jesus made about himself last week that we explored was that he was equal in person with God, which was blasphemous to the Jews, that he was equal in his works, being the one who created, being the one who performs miracles, that he was equal in power and sovereignty, having the ability to give life and to execute judgment. He was equal in his judgment and equal in his honor with God. Now, these things set the conflict between the religious leaders of the day, especially the Pharisees and Jesus, to its highest degree. And for the remainder of Jesus' public ministry, the Jews would seek an opportunity to kill him. So in the middle of our passage last week, if you look in your Bibles at verses 21 and 22, here's one of the claims that Jesus made about himself. He says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Now, in these two verses, Jesus is going to make the two key claims that deity must be able to make. The two key claims that deity must make. Number one, it is the power to give life. False gods promote themselves to be able to do certain things. False prophets proclaim to be able to do certain things. But one of the key claims of deity is you must be able to give life. And deity must be the source of life. Just as God is the source of life in this universe, He is the source of our spiritual lives by giving to us the ability to know who He is, to give us the faith to reach out to Him. And so that is a key claim that deity makes. And Jesus says, I give life to whom I will. The second key claim to deity is this. The power or the right to judge. Deity must have the right to judge. And this is exactly what Jesus says here. But He, the Father, has given all judgment to Me, the Son. 
This means that God is the standard of righteousness. That God is the one who sets the bar and the threshold by what we will be judged. It isn't by culture. It isn't by parents or friends. It isn't even by what we believe to be true. But the absolute standard that God gives to us in His Word is the measure by which you and I will be judged. And that is a key claim of deity, the right or the power to judge. These are the pinnacles of the expression of deity. Now, having established the right to give life and to judge, in our verses today, Jesus is going to make further application about these claims. All right, pardon me. So let's look at our verses here that we're going to focus on today, verses 25 through 30. Here's what Jesus says. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so, He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice, and will come forth, those who did the good deeds, to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds, to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So our topic today is the two resurrections. This is what Jesus is talking about in this passage, the two resurrections. And one of the age-old questions that has existed from the beginning of time is, what is going to happen to me when I die? Some believe that when we die, we pass into absolute nothingness. We just no longer exist. It's what's called annihilationism. It means the physical life is all that there is. There is no spirit. There is no God. There is no afterlife. You live and you die, and that is the end. Some believe in reincarnation, that you will come back to this world in another life form, perhaps an animal, perhaps another human. And the way you come back will be based upon the kind of life that you have lived while on this earth. Some believe that when we die, we pass into a spirit world of consciousness that can interact with people through mediums or other so-called gifted people. And of course, Christianity teaches and believes that we either pass into an eternity in God's presence or an eternity separated from God's presence. And that, my friend, depends upon what we've done with Jesus. And that is the point of this monologue that Jesus is having with the Pharisees over the healing of this crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. And this is the emphasis of what we're going to see as we go through this. So there are two aspects to the resurrection that we're going to talk about. The first one is the spiritual resurrection. Verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Very simple sub-points that we're going to look at today. The first one is this, the persons. The persons of this spiritual resurrection. Remember when Jesus says, truly, truly, He is giving a solemn 
testimony, he's making an emphatic declaration that what I am about to say is absolutely truthful. There is no second guessing it. There is no setting aside of it. What I am about to say comes from the very mouth of God. There is an hour coming and now is. So that's a paradoxical statement that Jesus makes here at the onset of talking about these spiritual resurrections and the people who are going to be involved in this. And this paradoxical statement that we see here expressed in many other parts of Scripture is simply this. It's an already, not yet scenario. An hour is coming, future, and now is present tense. So the hour of the believer's actual resurrection is coming at some unknown future point in time when this physical life is over and we are ushered into an eternity with God. Now this is speaking to the believer, obviously. You know, we live an appointed number of days in this world. None of us know how many days it's going to be. But when the end comes, it comes completely and we are instantly ushered into the presence of God as one of His children. We don't know when that time is going to come and this is often while Jesus will say things like truly, truly and why He will often say things like He who has an ear to hear, let Him hear. The things that Jesus says in terms of our eternity are incredibly important because our eternity is set up in the truth that Jesus is giving to us. So this hour is going to come sometime in the future when our physical life is done and we will spiritually be resurrected into the presence of the Lord. There's also the hour of the believer's resurrection is actually right now. The second part of verse 25, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and will live. So there's the paradox. You, in your position in the Lord Jesus Christ, as a born-again child of God, you are already resurrected spiritually, even though the actual resurrection of your spirit is at some point in the future. He says, when the dead, when the spiritually dead, will hear the voice of the Son of God, and they will live. So we have been awakened from our spiritual death, our spiritual slumber. God has awakened us and has given us the capacity to know who He is, to hear what He is saying to us, and He gives to us the faith to actually respond to the truth of who He is. This paradoxical reality can be stated in another way. While Christ was present, He offered spiritual life to all who had placed their faith in Him. Yet the full expression of this new era that He is inaugurating would not come until the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God was poured forth onto all who would believe. Both during Christ's earthly ministry and in the fullness of the Spirit's ministry after Pentecost, the spirituality, excuse me, the spiritually dead who responded to the voice of the Son of God would live in the Spirit. Your residence is already in the heavenly places based upon what the book of Ephesians says, even though we're still firmly entrenched here on earth. We live in the tension of that paradox. Our already experience is here we are. Our not yet is where we're going to be. So we have this paradoxical reality 
that those who are dead in Christ, who hear his words, will live in the now and also in the future. So when Jesus is talking about the dead here, he's talking to spiritually dead unbelievers. You know, when the Bible talks about death, it's not talking about extinction or annihilationism. It's talking about separation. When you die physically, your spirit is separated from your body. When you are dead spiritually, your spirit is separated from God. So the New Testament specifically talks about the position or the condition of those who are unbelievers. Ephesians 2.1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Can't be any clearer than that, right? Before Christ... Before we were made spiritually alive, you and I were dead. We were separated from God because we were in our trespasses and our sins. We read in the book of Romans, And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, we weren't physically dead, and then got saved, and then came back to life physically, right? So spiritually, we are made alive in Christ, and based on Romans, we are to live our lives as those who have been raised from spiritual death. Now, as we think about the unbeliever, there's three characteristics of the life of the unbeliever, and this is true of every one of us at some point in our life, and this is important. For us to understand this. Three characteristics of the spiritually dead. One, they are insensitive to the things of God. You can talk to them about the the beauty that exists within God and they're unmoved. You can talk about the majesty of all that God has created and they shrug their shoulders with indifference. You can talk to them about the reality of heaven and hell and impending judgment for those who are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ and they don't care. I remember having a conversation with somebody who was very close to me, and we were talking about heaven and hell and Jesus and religion and all that kind of stuff, and this is what I said to him. I said, are you not concerned that if you were to die today that you would be separated from God for all eternity? And he said to me, no, not really. I was shocked. I I never expected for anybody to ever say such a thing, but the reason someone can say such a thing is because they are spiritually dead and they are insensitive to the things of God. makes no difference to them about what God's Word says or what their future may be based upon the truth of God's Word. They are insensitive to these realities. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Second characteristic of the unbeliever is they are unable to respond to God. When we are dead in our trespasses and our sins, we are incapable of responding to God. It is not until God calls us and we are awakened from our spiritual slumber Are we able to know the truth about who he is and then given the faith to respond to that? Look what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case 
The God of this world, Satan or enemy, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Their eyes are veiled, and until that veil is removed, they cannot see him and they cannot respond to him. And in reality, they don't even care about it because they're dead. They are spiritually dead. Thirdly, the third characteristic is they live by the world's standards. You know, I have this question that gets posed to me uh, an awful lot, and that is the idea of a believer's eternal security. So you mean once saved, always saved? Yep, that's what the Bible teaches. Does that mean that I can go and live my life any way that I want? Well, theoretically it does, but you're not supposed to want to go live your life any way you want. As a born-again believer in Christ, as we just looked at in Romans chapter 6, you are to present yourselves as those alive from the dead. But when you look at the life of a professing Christian, all you and I have to go by is what we can see, right? And when the life doesn't match the profession, we have legitimate questions about that. How can a person who professes to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior live the way they do? They curse like sailors, they carouse like sailors, they cheat like whomever you would like to fill in the blank with there. They're just not seeking the holiness or the righteousness of God. They live their lives with no interest in pleasing God. And we have to question the validity of someone's profession of faith. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not, did we not, did we not cast out demons, perform any miracles? Cast out demons, perform any miracles. And he's going to say, hey, I never knew you. Here's what we read in Ephesians. Because we are dead in our trespasses and sin, verses 2 and 3 go on, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, meaning our old way of life, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience under the control, the influence of Satan himself, verse 3, among them we all, excuse me, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And that is the contrast between the old way of living and the new way of living for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So unbelievers have no sensitivity to the things of God. They're unable to respond to God and they live simply by the world's standards. So in contrast to that, those who are spiritually dead, those who are being made alive or are already alive are those who hear the words of Christ. So these people are those who hear and will live and that is the eternal spiritual life. Those who hear the claims of Christ, those who place their faith in the person of Christ, believing Him to have the authority to give life to whom He chooses and to execute judgment as the Father shows Him, those people who place that kind of faith in Him, those are the ones who are going to live the central message in John's Gospel is that Jesus came to give spiritual life to those who were dead. In fact, that's really the central theme of the Bible. The four major movements of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, 
and restoration. The Bible is filled with examples of those things. The spiritual central message of the Bible is our need for redemption and the provision of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So we looked at the persons. The persons of this spiritual resurrection are those who are made alive in Christ. Secondly, we see the purpose of this resurrection. Verse 25, that last part there, and those who hear will live. Those who hear will live. The purpose of this spiritual resurrection is very simply abundant, everlasting life. You know, it's interesting when you talk to people about what they think heaven is going to be and you get a myriad of descriptions, right? Oh, it's going to be miles of free shopping. It's going to be the most plush golf courses in all the world. It's going to be a life filled with all the indulgences of the world that I didn't get to enjoy set in a spiritual context. (laughs) I don't think that's what it's going to be. The purpose of the spiritual resurrection is abundant, everlasting life. Now, if you remember back when we looked at Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well as he was going into Samaria, he said to her in John 4.10 and verse 14 that he promised her living water, a well of water that would spring up into eternal life. We're going to see in just a few short weeks in John chapter 10.10 when Jesus says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You know, I've been a Christian for 30 years. I've been in full-time vocational ministry for 25 years. And I have never yet met a Christian who has said, I regret giving my life to Christ. Never. I've never heard anybody say that. I have talked to people who in their 30s and 40s were staring at the face of a terminal diagnosis and they say, praise the Lord, I can't wait to meet Him. How can you say such a thing? It's because you've been made spiritually alive. Our lives aren't rooted in this world. Our lives are to be rooted in the truth of who we really are. And that is the born-again children of God who are temporarily in this world being trained to enjoy the vastness of God's presence and eternity forever and forever and forever. The difference that a relationship with Christ makes during our time on earth is incalculable, is it not? Can you imagine what your life would be like if you didn't know who Jesus was and you hadn't given your life to Him and you didn't have the truth of God's Word to guide you? Well, not only do we have this incalculable difference that Christ makes in our life while on this earth, we have this confident hope of an eternity with Him which is truly unimaginable. We see these descriptions in the book of Revelation. And I want to say that John saw something like, something like, something like. It doesn't necessarily mean that what John saw is what we're actually going to experience. It's a beauty that is so indescribable that the closest thing John can get to is streets that were like gold. Not necessarily going to be streets of gold, but it's so unimaginable that that's the best that he could do to explain what it is that he saw. I remember telling my kids when they were little, and they would ask me, God, they said, Dad, what's heaven like? 
Life's pretty tough when a kid's five, six, seven years old, isn't it? I mean, what do they think? A Chuck E. Cheese all day, every day, forever and forever? I mean, you don't really know. And so I would say things like this. Think about the best day you ever, ever had. Think about how you felt on that day. Okay. Heaven's going to be hundreds and thousands of times better than that. doesn't mean you're going to get to be doing those things that brought all that joy to your life. But the joy of heaven is going to be exponentially greater than the greatest day we've ever experienced on this earth. I remember when my kids were born. The first one especially because it's the first one. And looking at this little thing and going, wow, this is amazing. Look what God has done. And that wonder and that amazement and that love, that, that sense of awe, unimaginably exponentially greater when we see Him as He really is, free from the presence of sin and all things that would distort it. Now, my second kid's sitting back there. And there was great joy when you were born too. (laughs) It's the growing up part that makes it so hard, right? But notice the prerequisite to this giving of eternal life. It's very important that we notice this prerequisite. Given to those that hear. You know, that doesn't mean that everybody who hears the gospel presentation is going to be saved. It doesn't mean that everybody who hears the gospel presentation is even going to want to be saved. But what it means is this is that when we have been given spiritual ears to hear the words of the Lord and to hear His call, we will be saved. It's hearing in the sense of placing our faith in Him and in Him alone. It's following Him as He leads us through His Word and to live the kind of lives that His Word tells us that we ought to live. We'll see this way down the road too as we look at the Great Shepherd. John 10.27, My sheep hear My voice. And I know them, and they follow me. You know, if you ever walk up on a herd of sheep and begin to talk to them, they're going to probably run because they don't know your voice. You could climb the fence and walk the pen, and they're not going to follow you. But the shepherd gets in there and calls their names. You know what? They're going to be right there, right at his side. They're going to follow all the way. And that's the analogy that Jesus gives to us about we who claim to be the sons and the daughters of the Most High God. We hear his voice and we will follow him. Thirdly, we're going to see the power of this spiritual resurrection. Verse 26, For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. So Jesus is the source of life. He is the source of physical life. He is the source of spiritual life. We looked at this already in the prologue. In John 1.4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Only He can give life to others. We cannot give life to anybody else. If you're a doctor or a nurse or somebody that knows CPR, you can resuscitate somebody back to life, but you can't give them life because we are not the source of life. We have it, but we are not the source of it. Those who deny the deity of Christ will twist Jesus' statement here 
and saying that the Father has given to the Son life. And when they do that, when they twist that statement, they're trying to make Jesus a creature, someone who has been created by God as opposed to one that has been eternal with God from the very beginning. And they want to make this an admission of his own inferiority to the Father. But this is important that we understand this. This is not what this verse says at all. Just as we saw in John 1.4 that Jesus is the source of life, it's important to understand that when Jesus became a man, he voluntarily gave up the independent use of his divine attributes and what is called his earthly condescension. Jesus has existed with the Father and the Spirit from eternity past. He always has been. He was not created. But in order for him to become a man, he set aside his divine attributes temporarily in submission to this need of, of redemption and this earthly condensation, con, excuse me, condescension and set that stuff aside. It doesn't mean that he is not the source of life. We see this in Philippians 2, 6 and 7. Who, although he existed in the form of God, Jesus, and did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be clutched to, to never let go of, to become a man and come to the world he created, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. The Creator entered the world that he created in order to redeem mankind to himself. Just as we saw last time in John 5.19, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So the Father granted Jesus the authority to give life both physically and spiritually even during the self-limiting period of His earthly Ministry. Jesus has always been, as he stated in his claims that are a continuation, this is a continuation of what we looked at last time, that he's equal with God in person, in power, in sovereignty, in judgment, right? So he is saying to the Pharisees, to those who do not hear him, who are not willing to listen to him, exactly who he is. So this is the spiritual resurrection that we're looking at. The persons, the power, and the purpose and now we're going to look at the second part of this, and that is the physical resurrection. Verse 27, And he gave him authority, he the Father gave the Son authority, to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. So verse 27 restates the authority that Jesus has as the Son of Man, his favorite self-designation that identifies him as the promised Messiah that Israel has been waiting for, but also in the vein that he is the one and only begotten of the Father, and so he is the Son of Man. Not only to give life, as we saw in verses 25 and 26, but also in the execution of God's judgment. Now, when we think about this unwelcomed subject of God's judgment, and by the way, the culture that we live in today is trying to strip away from God His just judgment, because after all, God is a God of love, He's got a mercy. He's got a grace. He's my friend. And I can put him in my pocket and take him with him wherever I go in case I need him. Right? 
This unwelcome subject of judgment is something that we need to pay attention to. So here's something that I remembered as we looked at this when we were dealing with the passage related to Nicodemus. In John 3.18, Jesus says to Nicodemus, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the authority to judge is not only a divine prerogative that Jesus has because he is equal to God in his person, but this judgment has already taken place in this paradoxical scenario of already and not yet, just as it did in the spiritual resurrection. So those who have not given their lives to Christ, those who have not been spiritually made alive, have already been judged, even though the coming judgment is still at some point in the future. So we're going to see a very similar format here. Number one, as we talk about the physical resurrection, we're talking about the persons that are involved in this. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and then the very first part of 29, and will come forth. So when Jesus says, do not marvel at this, he's referring back to the things that he has already said about himself, that he has the authority to give life to whom he chooses, and that he has authority to execute judgment, and he will do this exactly as the Father has shown him. It is also likely an instruction on what Jesus is about to say in regards to the physical resurrection. He says, an hour is coming. And it has a view of the physical resurrection that is going to take place in the future. Now, he does not say here, like he did when we're talking about spiritual resurrection, an hour is coming and now is. And I believe the reason that he doesn't add that is because, as he's already said in John 3.18, that judgment is already taking place. It's fixed until those that are spiritually dead are made alive through the grace of Christ and place their faith in him. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. You know, everywhere we go, we see cemeteries marked with stones. Right outside our window here, there's a little cemetery. And those markers indicate a life that has been lost, a casket of bones. And that reality is taking place all over the world. Countless billions of people have died from the beginning of creation And what Jesus says here is absolutely amazing. He says, all who hear in the tombs, excuse me, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. So the persons of this physical resurrection is all people. All people are going to be physically raised. Both the saved and the lost will experience a physical resurrection. Until this physical resurrection takes place, those in heaven and in hell only exist in a spiritual form. It is not until the physical resurrection that our spirit and our body is joined together and for the Christian to be lived out in the new heaven and in the new earth that God will create. 
for the unsaved, that new body will be joined to its spirit to live in eternal separation from God forever. And I believe that's why you hear the terms that Jesus used with the gnashing of teeth, a place where the worm never turns. It's just unending physical torture that we can't truly explain or articulate. Thinking about this reality that every tomb will have bones come out for a resurrected body. Even those that are cremated, those that have been lost at sea, those that are dead and we don't know where they ended up, they will be raised with a physical body. Now, it's interesting here that Jesus introduces and John records an eschatological element here and times, but he doesn't really develop it because that's not his purpose. We could spend the next several weeks talking about eschatology and all the differing views of what may or may not happen, but that isn't the point of what Jesus is talking about here. His purpose is to state that just as he has the divine prerogative to give life, he also has the same prerogative in extending judgment to those who will be physically raised from the dead, and that is everybody. There is a future judgment that awaits us And Jesus is drawing his audience's attention to this reality. So the persons of this physical resurrection are all people who have ever lived. Secondly, the power of this physical resurrection. Verses 28b and 29. They will hear his voice and they will come forth. On the day of judgment, Jesus will speak and all will hear his voice and all will come forth from their tombs. The power of this physical resurrection is very simply His voice. At His voice, when He shouts, every dead body is going to be raised to be given a resurrected body. It's an unbelievable thought and an unbelievable sign that these billions upon billions of people are going to be raised to a physical life for the purpose that we're going to look at in just a second here. Now, hearing his voice in this instant is very different from hearing him as in verse 25. Verse 25, to hear is with the spiritual ear. It is to place faith in. It is to entrust ourselves to him. But in verse 29, it is simply hearing the powerful voice of God calling all people before him. Hey, you want to know what? When the king of this universe summons all people, they don't have a choice at that day of judgment. All will stand before him and be judged by him. Just as the dead man Lazarus heard the voice of Jesus calling him forth, at the end of the age, all the dead will hear the voice of Jesus and they will come forth. But there's a very different purpose here. The purpose of this physical resurrection is what we see here in verse 29b. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So the purpose of this physical resurrection for both the saved and the lost is judgment. Now, as you see in our text here, this judgment is based upon the life that we lived. Very, very important distinction that we make here. This judgment is based upon the life that we lived. Our salvation is not dependent upon the life that we lived. Remember what he said in verse 25? That those who hear 
will be given eternal life. There's no implication that it's based upon or dependent upon the kind of life that we live because we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But our works will be the basis of our judgment. Here's what Jesus goes on to say in Matthew chapter 6, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. doesn't mean that you're going to be lost or saved on your deeds, but there's a reward. There is a judgment that comes based upon the lives that we live. Romans chapter 6 says virtually the same thing. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. Both Jesus and Paul are quoting Psalm 62.12. The lives that we live form the test of the faith that we profess. Hear that again. The lives that we live form the test of the faith that we profess. One that will prove we are saved or one that proves we have professed falsely or have not professed at all. Good works are simply the evidence of salvation. That's what Jesus calls fruit. The lives that we live are evidence of our salvation. The lives that we live do not earn us or make us deserving of salvation. It's a very, very simple distinction that has to be made, but an incredibly important one because we cannot be saved based on the kind of life that we have lived. Those who believe in the Son will, as a result, do good deeds, while those who reject the Son will be characterized by evil deeds. But again, our resurrection isn't based upon our works, but upon our union with Christ. Scripture is abundantly clear on this truth. Here's what Paul would go on to say in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. So what Jesus is saying, or what Paul is saying, is that if you have been saved, you will be raised just like Jesus was raised. Independent of the kind of life that you've lived, but you will still, I will still give an account for the life that I've lived, and I will be judged and rewarded based upon that reality. The importance of the doctrine of the resurrection cannot be overstated because without it, there is no Christian faith. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 through 19. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So our spiritual and our physical resurrection is based upon our relationship with Christ. On that final day, Jesus will execute a perfect and harmonious judgment and complete agreement with the Father's will, just like everything else 
that he does. Now verse 30, as we conclude our passage here, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus has even more clearly asserted his, his divine prerogative as the Son of Man who gives life to whom he pleases and who judges all based upon the will of the Father. We need to realize that we have great riches in Christ. We need to focus on these great riches. To the one who executes the perfect will of the Father and executes judgment. If we do not know who he is, if we are not in a saving relationship with Christ, it is imperative that we give great consideration to the claims that Jesus made. Because those are the claims to which you and I will have to give an answer. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the great God that you are, what you have done for us in and through Christ, the inseparable union that we have with him, the confident hope of a spiritual resurrection, a physical resurrection, where we will see you as you really are, where we will walk and live in this new world that you will create. Father, if there's any here today that have never given their lives to you, would you make that clear to them? Would you break through the veil? Would you remove the blinders? Would you undo the deceit and enable them to see Jesus as the only way to the Father? Father, we, your children, give thanks to you for who you are. We heartily affirm the claims that you have made in our passage of study. We give you thanks for the great God that you are saving us from the depth of our sin, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And for that, we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.